So, if you were here last week, you already know that we're kind of dealing with a passage that's heavy and has some really, some really direct application to us, and it's not easy. It's, it's really a high call. And if you were here last week and you walked out thinking, how do I apply this, or let me try to apply this, you recognize probably pretty quickly that it's a lot easier to talk about than it is to actually do. Uh, the reality today is that the call is going to be there again. We're going to be dealing with this passage again. Uh, the call is going to be there. The responsibility is going to be there. But in the midst of all of this, as we close out, we'll also get to see the assurance that comes with living out what Christ has called us to. So we're in the middle uh, of a sermon. It's in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses uh, 27 through 36, or 335, really. Uh, we're going to be in this passage that deals with with uh, Christ's call to love. And it's right in the middle of a sermon that Jesus is giving to a great number of his disciples. We don't know how many were there. We just know it's a great number. And, in, and those disciples are counted in a greater multitude of people who had come from all over Israel. So Jesus is talking specifically to the people that have, that have come to, um, to come to follow him. And he's speaking indirectly to those who are coming to check him out, coming to see who Jesus is, see, see his powerful miracles work. And as he gave this sermon, he, he began to instruct his disciples, to train his disciples in, in what they were going to be facing and in what he was calling them to do in life. And so he began to kind of challenge them and, and give them a whole new set of values, a new set of priorities. He challenged them on the pursuit of wealth and, and comfort and happiness and and popularity, not that, not that it's bad if you're any of those things, if you're a wealthy person or if you're a comfortable person or if you're a happy person or a popular person, that in and of itself is not bad. But if those are the primary pursuits of your life, then you have the wrong values. And he's calling his people to some countercultural, counterintuitive set of values to pursue him primarily, no matter what it costs, no matter what it means for you, he's calling us to pursue him first. And, and then he tells us that, that regardless of what we seem to give up in this life, no matter what it seems like we're losing for his sake, he assures us, his followers, that his word, or, or that this is the worst, I'm sorry, that this is the worst that it will ever get, that our best is yet to come. Our best is coming, and there's great things for us to look forward to, and he assures us of that. But he not only assures us, he warns those who would have the appearance of disciples. Even among the twelve, there was Judas the traitor, those who would have an appearance of being a disciple, one who would have some form of religion, some, some, some moral uh, uh, perspective that they would live by, some self-righteous effort that they would cling to. He warns them. He warns them that, that the reality is if, if your life is about pursuing wealth and, and comfort and happiness and popularity, if that's the purpose of your life that you're giving your life to, if that is what you're sacrificing everything for, his warning is that this is the best it gets. Your worst is yet to come. And that's stark, I mean, that's hard, that's difficult words. But he loves people enough that he doesn't sugarcoat, but rather comes to them in the point of their need. But these wouldn't be the only assurances and the only warnings. In fact, the whole sermon is really based on this. If you read it all the way through, you hear his assurances and his warnings all the way through. And we're going to be dealing with those. 
This wouldn't be the only place in which he would challenge people to turn their value system upside down and to live with a different perspective in, in, in front of them, a different purpose for their life. In fact, his next words, after opening into his sermon and setting these blessings, these assurances, and these warnings in front of us, these next words might have even gotten more difficult, especially for those who follow him, who who, who say they believe in him, who have trusted him, because he calls us to love the most unlovable people that we can think of, our enemies. Those people who hate us, who oppose us, who work against us, who don't like us, who call us names behind our back, who don't walk in real fellowship with us, who who would rebel against us, not necessarily with their words, but with their actions. These people are the ones he calls us purposefully to love. And so as we step into this passage, starting in verse 27, we're going to really review in these first four verses... But we're going to hear this call, this responsibility given to us. And then we're going to get to see the beauty of the assurance that comes through seeing it fulfilled in our lives. So read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Man, those are big, big expectations. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. This is countercultural. This is counterintuitive. This is not worldly wisdom. No self-help guru is standing up in front of great crowds of people. No health and wealth prosperity preacher is standing up in front of churches uh, that, that number in the thousands upon thousands upon thousands and saying, sacrifice yourself, give up what you desire that you might love your enemy. This, is, this would, in our world would be something that would be seen as Crazy, this is, not, this, is not what he, this is not what makes sense to us. And this is what he calls us to. To love our enemy, love those who would stand against us, and if they could get away with it, that they would actually harm us. Love them. I showed you from this text the active nature of Christ-like love. That we're to choose to do it. This is not something that happens accidentally. This is not something that we're out of control of. We are to make an active choice, a, a, a willful choice to do something for someone else. Be beneficial to and for others. And we're to do good, he says. Speak truth with grace. The word was blessing. And, that, and when we recognize that there's a, a verbal aspect of our blessing, that, this, that this, this expectation is that as we speak, we speak with truth. To love people, and we speak with grace in order to love people. They have to both happen. Even as we pray, we petition God on their behalf, not just what we would do for their good, but we seek God's justice and His mercy in their stead. In verses 29 through 30, we were able to see not just the active nature, but the reactive nature of Christ-like love. Jesus used three illustrations to help us move beyond this idea. Here's this default action. 
do good, pray and bless those that, that would hurt you. And, and, and here's this reactive, this, this reactive nature, this, this way we react when we've been attacked or when we've been hurt or when we've been humiliated. He says that we're to, when humiliated, we, we don't humiliate in return. Love does not humiliate people in return. If someone has made you feel foolish or embarrassed you in front of others, to love them is to not seek their embarrassment in front of those people. When another's need is realized, when a tangible, real need is realized, love accepts the cost. Like we seek to bear the burden with them, maybe even for them. When robbed, love responds, seeking generosity rather than repayment, rather than getting back what we think we've lost. And truly, to sum these ideas up, these three perspectives up, you might say that, that love does not seek vengeance. Rather than, rather than retaliating or seeking to get even or, or seeking revenge, which is really about not just getting even, it's about getting ahead, right? I mean, when, you, you know the saying about revenge. It's, it's not a good one. But we don't just seek to get even when we seek revenge, do we? we want to make sure that that person suffers at least a little bit more than we did. Love doesn't do this. But instead, it, it, as it responds, it takes on that active nature of doing good, speaking truth with grace, and asking God for justice and mercy. How are you doing with that? It's difficult. But as I mentioned last week, as I brought it to a close last week, the, the idea is not just that we've become doormats or, or that we just simply step back and just become uh, something that people that are just taken advantage of and don't ever have a thing to say. We, that's misunderstanding the point. But seeking to walk and express the image of Christ. You see, as we closed, I reminded you that to, to love like this, to... <clears throat> To love our enemies like Christ has loved our, his enemies. It's, that's the idea. That we were once his enemy. We stood opposed to him. And we probably didn't ever post that on our Facebook feed. Like we didn't ever wake up on a morning and put in our, you know, how are you feeling, how are you doing? I hate Jesus or I'm Jesus' enemy. Right? We, didn't, we, we don't do that. But our actions... The desires of our heart, they prove our rebellion. They prove our position. But yet, when he was, when he was accused, when he was beaten, and when he was slapped, he spoke truth and grace. When his cloak was taken, when his tunic was robbed from him and they gambled over it in front of him, he did not revile. When he hung on a cross, he didn't call, call down legions of angels to, to burn up those who were crucifying him. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He gave his life willingly to those who were taking it. 
That the, that the certainty of salvation would be, would be made for any who would believe, any who would come to Him and trust His work on the cross. The certainty of salvation from God's wrath and the forgiveness of our sin would be made certain. Brothers and sisters, if you are here today, you have been loved this way. Who are we not to love others like He has loved us? This is the Christ-like love that He has called us to, every one of His people, every one of His true disciples, those of us who have come and been converted. This is what He calls us to. Because He has, because it's so desperately misunderstood in our world, I thought, we need to slow down, we need to say, I I intended to push through these verses in a week, and and really even now I'm wrestling not going three weeks, but I, I think we can cover what we need to cover But we stopped here at verse 30 because we need to dwell in this a little bit. We need to be reminded of His great love for us. It is there that we find our ability to love others. But we pick up now. We pick up now in verse 31 because just just to continue looking at the love, at this call to love our enemy like Christ has loved His. to, To love our enemy, just like Jesus loved his. And that's where we start today. Just having built out this review, we see it says in verse 31, we'll read through the end of the passage, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. I hope you can already begin to see and sense the the assurance that comes from loving in this way. But as we started, we start with verse 31. If you, if you aren't familiar with the verse known as the golden rule, you're probably at least familiar with the concept. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, but probably you heard somebody at some point do unto others as, as you'd have them do unto you. You're probably familiar with the concept that's there. The truth is it's not even just completely a Christian ethic. There's a whole lot of religions, a whole lot of moral perspectives that have this ethic of reciprocity is one of the ways that it's known. In fact, let me just share some with you and help you see if you can pick out some of the differences because there's a reality that Jesus' statement here is drastically different, much further reaching than what the world would still have us consider. Hillel, he was a famous rabbi. He kind of was, was responsible for the Jewish perspectives of the day when Jesus was walking the earth. He was, he was one that even today has shaped and, and people depend upon. His perspective of the golden rule was, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. And out of the Apocrypha, this is not on there, but out of the Apocrypha, in, it's an extra biblical book, Tobit chapter 4 verse 15, there's another idea, another perspective that maybe the Jews would have built their built their view of this out of. It says, do to no one what you yourself hate. Very similar to what Hillel would teach. 
It doesn't end with Judaism. It's not something that's just Judeo or Christian. It's, it's, it's all over. Confucius, for example, says, do not impose on others what you do not wish for yourself. Sounds pretty, that, that sounds good. Buddhism says, treat not other, oh man, I don't know what I wrote here. Treat not other in ways you, treat not others, I think that should be others, in ways you yourself would find hurtful. And at first glance, it might seem like, oh, well, that's, that's very similar. So this isn't just a Christian thing that everybody's trying to kind of live this way. Everybody kind of has figured this out, that, it's, that, that, that we need to be thinking in this term. But they're missing a vital component. So Jesus says, as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Do you see the distinction? Do you see the difference? While the others are preventing negative treatment, Jesus is actually encouraging beneficial action towards others. The others are just calling a person not to act in a harmful way. But Jesus is saying that we're to to go on loving someone even if they harm us. In fact, he says we must act. Jesus has stated it with this positive action in mind, not simply, not simply seeking to end negative treatment, but to encourage others to beneficial action. It's to encourage us to beneficial action, to actually have us doing something. You see, the reality is, is that Jesus' ethic here, Jesus' golden rule is much further reaching than what the world would have us believe is a good golden rule. It's not just directed at our enemies either, is it? But who does he say to do this for? for? Others. Who are the others? Anybody but you, like everybody else, right? Like you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, I know who I am. Who are the others? Everybody else. This is how we're to treat everyone. Now, now in the context, and we can recognize that in the context, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just speak to our enemies, but it doesn't exclude them. It actually includes our enemies. You see, this is still counterculture, counterintuitive. It's a radically different idea. The, the Jews of the day, they were encouraged to hate their enemies. Jesus is saying, bring them back in. In the same way you would treat your neighbor, in the same way you would treat your brother, in the same way you would treat your father or mother, you treat your enemies. Love them. This is shocking. Do good to them, pray for them, bless them. And when they hurt you, don't react with vengeance in mind. But continue thinking of their good. And really, this statement is really a summary of the first four verses. I mean, the reality is, is that Jesus hasn't brought in some new teaching and all of a sudden, all of a sudden now we've got this whole new view. It's a summary of what he's already been bringing us. But we do get to see a different perspective of this Christ-like love. So last week we looked at the active nature of Christ-like love. This week we saw the active nature of Christ-like love. We saw the reactive nature of Christ-like love. Now in this verse, in this one verse, in this one command, we see the proactive nature of Christ-like love. To love our enemies like Jesus has loved His We must be proactively, sacrificially, and beneficially acting in their best interest. We must be moving in this way. We must be acting like this for their good. Not sitting around and hoping it's going to happen at some point. Not sitting around thinking, well, just haphazardly, we're going to love people. 
But to be proactive about it, to be pursuing it, to be intentional, purposeful about it. Jesus sets the world's ideas of love on end. He elevates this this view of love such that it's no longer just a good feeling towards someone or a bad feeling about someone's circumstances. And we're not just feeling good about them and and we like them as a person or feeling bad for what they're experiencing, but, but he calls us to actively pursue what's good for them. Even when they're not considerate of what's good for you. I wonder, do you think the church in North America is, do you think we'd be guilty of this? Or do you think we'd be accused of loving people in this way? That's really probably too broad. How about right here in Springfield? Do you think the church right here in Springfield, the, the Christians in Springfield, would be seen as a people who love their Enemies. It's probably still too broad. How about our church? This church. Do you think Springfield or the people that we engage or the people that we meet or the people that we know of us, do you, do you think they see us as a church who loves this sacrificially, this beneficially, this proactively. And truly, that's really still too broad. Because if we're going to be this church, you have to answer the question, am I a Christian who would be accused of loving this way? Our church will only be what its individual members are. Do we love others like this? Do we love our families, our our, our Christian brothers and sisters? Do we love our friends and neighbors like this? Are we going out of our way, sacrificing of ourselves, sacrificing of our time, sacrificing of our talents, our energy, and sacrificing of our treasures to ensure that we are a benefit to those around us, those who are even easy to love? You heard the call in the scripture earlier. You heard the call to to love one another in this way. It starts here, but it doesn't end here. There is no boundary on which our love is supposed to stop. There is no, no line, no fence, no privacy fence that we're to keep the love on one side of and the truth on the other side of. It's truth and grace brought not just to the brothers and sisters in this room, the people who we find easy to love but the people who are, who are desperately needing it most, the people who are lost, who, who do not know what they're doing, need this love. Are we loving anybody like this? I can't help but think of a video. I saw this week on Facebook. It was in my, my news feed. I don't know where it came from or where it was posted. It was a man walking into Target who's videoing, right? Like his face isn't on camera, but he's videoing everybody in front of him. And he's screaming out judgments of condemnation because of their bathroom policy. And he's calling them to repentance. 
And the reality is I don't completely disagree with his call to repentance. But I absolutely disagree with his method. I don't see that that's what Jesus has called us to do. Because while he's bringing the truth, he is not expressing it with grace. And you can, you can argue with me. You can be upset with me all you want if, if you want. But I don't think that's what we saw Jesus doing not once with a sinful people who do not know what they're doing. And he might have talked that way to a bunch of religious folks who had the, the truth, who had the, the prophets, who had the scriptures, who had every opportunity to know the truth, and yet they rejected it. He might have been very frank with them. That's not how we saw him speak, not how we saw him interact with the people who didn't know what they were doing, who were incapable of doing anything different. Why are we so surprised? Why are we, brothers and sisters, so offended when lost people act like lost people? When sinners act like sinners? Why does that bother us so much? Why doesn't it move us to compassion, to to love them? I have my opinions, but I'll save them. I'll never forget last year during a Our city was embroiled in controversy over the Soji stuff that was going on with the the city had put in, the city council had put into their clause with uh, sexual orientation, gender identity into their non-discrimination clause saying it was was discrimination to to withhold certain services from people with uh, their homosexual or transgender. And you know my feelings on that. I, I posted to the whole church. I wrote to the whole church a letter. If I lived in city limits, how I would vote. Would I vote to rescind that? Yes, I would have voted to rescind that. But here's the problem. The night that the vote was carried, I think it was KY3, it was one of the news sources, was in the headquarters of the Christians United for Political Action. They were the ones leading the charge. They were the ones that built the, they, they got the, 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 um, petition signed and got enough signatures so that they could bring this to a vote. And they stood in those headquarters, and as the news came out that the vote had carried and this SOGI ordinance would be repealed, these Christians, or at least the people who were identified as Christians by the name of the organization, were cheering and clapping when a people who do not know what they do were feeling betrayed and and battered and beaten and disregarded. That is pitiful. It's horrendous. Is this the way that you and I have been loved? No. No. We were his enemy. And yet he died that we would not have to remain his enemy. This is not what we've been called to. There's such responsibility here. It's vital, brothers and sisters, that we get this, that we understand it. Alistair Begg, preaching on this passage, concluded his sermon working through a similar frame of thought, saying this, I ask you, Think it out. Do we honestly believe at the end of the millennium that the non-Christian world has been overwhelmed by a quarter of a century of the inundation of Christian people who having read and understood their Bibles, said to themselves, 
We are going to shower people with love. We are going to show them the way that we feel. Or are they tempted to believe that we are just angry, miserable, rigid, censorious, pharisaical company of theologians? There's got to be a reason, he says. There's got to be a reason that Spurgeon not only preached evangelistically and taught the Bible, but he was involved in orphanages. There's got to be a reason that Moody was not only so effectively used in proclaiming of the gospel, but also wonderfully used in the social impact of his day. Before, in an earlier generation, when the church got serious about the things About these things, it built hospitals, it built orphanages, it built into the realm of need. We're building bookshops, atriums, gymnasiums. There's just a chance we may be missing a significant factor. And we can blame all the churches out there, but the responsibility starts right here starts right there in your seat in your heart and we've got to figure this out we've got to actually get busy loving people the way Christ has loved us let me just show you quickly four reasons four reasons I think that is so vitally important First, to love our enemies like Jesus has loved his is central to the mission of God or the mission that God has given the church. Again, sorry for the typo. This is why he came. I mean, this is what he came to do. He came to love his enemies so that they wouldn't have to remain his enemies. He didn't just then tag this command on as something we should do when we get around to it. It was central to the very, to, to the very existence that he lived and central to the very existence of what his followers to, to enact, to, to, to do, to, to be identified by. Look, we can come up with all kinds of reasons. I'm afraid. Well, oftentimes we don't love people by evangelizing with truth, with grace. So oftentimes we're too afraid because we're scared that they may, not, may ask us and answer a question we can't answer. They may, they may reject us. We're, we're afraid. But brothers and sisters, love is, is not about being afraid. Love is about, or fear is about self-protection. Love is about sacrifice of self. Right? Sacrificial, beneficial action. What is best for this person? What is good for this person or these people? Fear is about us protecting ourselves, and in some ways it's about us exalting ourselves. We have been called to pour ourselves out like Christ has poured himself out. I think we lack of faith. We just don't really believe that God's going to come through. We seem pretty confident that we're going to be saved when, when we die. We don't do such a good job of trusting him every day in life. They treated me so badly. I can't love them. You know what they did to me? I didn't deserve that. What do you deserve? What did you deserve from him? What has he given you instead? 
this call to love, it's not as... Look, it's, this is a call to follow in his mission. This is a call to partake in his work. This is a call to, to get involved with something that has eternal, real, true, lasting results. Anything we do apart from this love of enemies and this selfless act of love for others fails and falls apart. We can build the biggest of churches. We can gather the largest of crowds. We can have the best of programs. But if we don't have love, we are nothing, Paul says. We can do the coolest of things. Like, we can be the most popular of people. But if we have not love, we are a clanging symbol, he says. We can do noble things. We can feed the hungry. We can be be friends to the orphans. But if we do it for any other reason but for love, it is nothing. This is why Jesus came, and this is what he's called us into, to be a part of his mission. A mission that is eternally focused. A mission that says, yes, you may seemingly lose here, but the best is yet to come. To love our enemies like Jesus has loved his makes us distinct in a sinful world. Do you not think that the world needs to see a distinct love? I mean, you see it here in these pages. They know how to love people who love them. They know how to do good to people who do good to them. And I'll just I'll point this out just real quickly. That's probably, this is, it's an aside. It may not mean that much to many of you, but it's really interesting that he didn't change his word Agape, like agape is seen in, in, in the Greek as like this godly love. But he didn't change that word when he started talking about sinners. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love, that's agape. Even sinners agape those who love them. Now, they've got an ability to love those who love them. They're still created in the image of Christ. It might be marred and it might be hard to distinguish, but they are created in the image of God. Don't you think they need to see some distinction? Something different? Shouldn't Christians be exemplifying this countercultural, counterintuitive, this countercultural, counterintuitive purpose? Is it possible that because we haven't that the church has lost its credibility in our culture, not because of them, but because we have no longer loved them even when they're our enemy. We're all about trying to figure out how and why the church is losing its ground. We're all about trying to figure out why Nobody wants, we feel like, oh, I can't tell anybody I'm a Christian. They'll, they'll, you know, they got, people don't like Christians anymore. Is it possible it's because we're too focused on things that are temporary and not things that are eternal? Is it possible that we've gained this reputation in our culture not because we haven't loved one another, but because we haven't loved our enemies? To love our enemies like Jesus has loved his draws us further into the depths of God's amazing grace.
I'm about to turn a corner on you. I've confronted you in big ways with the responsibility that we have in a lost and a dying world in front of a people who do not know what they do. Here's our hope. These three illustrations that Jesus uses in verses 32 through 34. He says that sinners are able to love those who love them, but, but he asks, what benefit is it to you? If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is it to you? If you lend, expecting something in return, what benefit is that to you? That word benefit is the same word that's, that's translated over and over and over in Scripture as grace. It's the Greek word charis. So really the question he's asking is, what grace is that for you? That you would simply do things for others expecting something in return. You see, the reality is this. We, we struggle with this idea. I, I, let, me, let me say it like this. Let me, let me bring it in like this. There's Christians who are sitting here dehydrated on the grace of God, like they're starving for it. That they're, they're wondering where it's at. They're wondering where he's at. They're facing difficult circumstances, and he never promised anything different. They're facing just dry, weary days. They just don't have enough time for the things of God. And they're trying to figure out, where's God in all of this? And the reality is that maybe the reason, maybe the reason we're missing God is because we aren't walking in the grace that He's bestowed upon us. We want grace. And I want you to have grace. But to find His grace is not to sit around and think it's going to just show up on our doorstep. To have His grace in an abundant fashion is to get up and begin to let go of His grace and give it away and just keep handing it out. Even when people ridicule you and persecute you, you keep giving them that grace and that love that He's given you. And what you're going to find is that you can't run out and you're going to want more of that grace that you can't run out of, so you keep giving it away. And you know what's going to happen in your heart? You're going to long for His Word. You're going to long to pray for Him or, or pray to Him about what He's doing, thanking Him, honoring Him with your life and your words. If you're starving and you're, you're thinking, why can't I read the Bible? Why don't I have that desire anymore? Where did, where did my desire to pray go? It may be that you've quit walking in His love and expressing His love. To love our enemies like Jesus has loved us, it draws us further into the depths of God's amazing grace. As we step into this, He will show up. His grace is sufficient. His love is unending. It's unfathomable. There's a width and a breadth and a height and a depth that we can't even fathom. It will not run out. For too long, for too long, we have had this idea that, 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 oh, it's grace, so we can't do anything about it. But we need to learn from Dallas Willard. He says this, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. You don't deserve his good effort on your behalf. None of you do. Neither do I. Don't feel like I'm judging you because I'm right here with you, right? I, I get it. I know who I am. And I don't deserve to be here, nor can I earn my place before him, nor was he obligated to give me position or you before him. But he has bestowed it as a free gift upon you. And somehow we, we, we translate in that thinking that, oh, I'm just supposed to sit here and his grace keeps showing up. You're missing it. You're supposed to get up and walk in it. Like swim in the ocean of His grace. It takes effort. 
It takes doing. And when you begin to do this, you will find out that it is an ocean. That's beautiful. With the sun glimmering overhead that doesn't burn. The seagulls in the distance, the smell. So pleasant, peaceful. This is the grace that he's called us into. This is the grace that he calls us to extend to others by loving them the way we've been loved. To love our enemies like Jesus has loved his identifies us as his, as children of God. In verse 35, Jesus reiterates the commands and promises us that he assures us that, that the best is yet to come. Love your enemy. Do good. Lend without expecting anything in return. And your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High. In the text, and it's difficult to see in the English, I, I get that, but in the text you need to know that this isn't something that he is saying, if you love people this way, you will be this. This is speaking that this is the identity of a person who loves this way. Martin Luther says this, Love is an image of God and not a lifeless image, but the living essence of the divine nature which beams full of all goodness. You see, if we are able to love this way, it's because we have been loved this way. If we are able to express this grace to those who would persecute us, those who would stand opposed to us, those who, if they could get away with it, would harm us, if we were able to do this, it's not because we are good people, but because we are God's people who have been saved, who have been loved, who have experienced His grace. The assurance is for us. He will come through. The best is yet to come. Even today as we face the cost of loving our enemies, sacrificially, beneficially, proactively, seeking their best interest. Don't miss, in the midst of that assurance, don't miss the inherent warning. If you are a form of a disciple, if you are the appearance of a disciple, but you are dead inside, I have been asking that God would convict you of your sin, that you might repent and turn and receive his love that you might then love. I don't say those words because I just want to condemn you. I say those words because I love you enough that I don't want anybody in this building, anybody in this church walking into eternity thinking they've done enough to earn his goodness. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will experience his love in radical form. You will experience love from someone you counted as an enemy. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for pursuing things other than your will, for longing for things more than, more than you. for not always loving my enemy well. 
Forgive us. Help us walk in this. Help us. Strengthen us in it, Father. May your grace overwhelm us. Would you reassure us that as we see it bearing fruit in our lives, as we see it happening, would you reassure us that no matter what happens, we are your children. And because of that, we can make it. Our best is yet to come. Spirit, convict of us of our sin. Lead us into repentance. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.